glad to be here. I'm glad uh, that so many showed up for the, the next class in the last few days. It was really great meeting with you during those breakout times and, and um, thinking about a biblical worldview in light of where we are at in the 21st century. And uh, as we sometimes maybe things felt like everything's falling apart, but um, as Christians we see it, it's all falling together. This is part of God's plan, and um, God is sovereign. And um, before we jump into the message, I want to just give you a little update on um, my family and what we're doing in ministry. Uh, we're currently in Alaska. We're typically there during the summer months. Um, we have a ministry to Bush natives, and I'm the president of Great Commission Alaska. And uh, we, we want to be known as the Bible guys in Alaska. There's a lot of really good ministries with whom we partner quite often. Um, very few that focus specifically on discipleship and biblical training, specifically towards men. And um, we want to be the guys who bring biblical training to Bush, Alaska. And uh, we, have, we have had a, a difficult season with COVID because some villages are, um, they, well, they're just not receiving visitors as frequently uh, as they used to. So there's, we've had to get a little creative in our access to the, the prison system where we were ministering to native believers in prison. Um, who had become believers in prison, has been restricted. So we're having to do some other things along the way. We still have work with natives, but it's just we've had to kind of reinvent things in the interim. Um, and my family and I, if the Lord wills, we'd like to get back to Thailand later this uh, summer, fall. Uh, we're constantly looking at tickets and visa options. The biggest challenge, honestly, is is not is not COVID, even though they've They've had a bit of an uptick in COVID cases in Thailand in the last few months. I'm not really sure why. Um, I have suspicions as to why that could be or why it wasn't like that a year ago. But I, the, the issue really for us is not that. It's not the vaccination. It's really just I, I can't guarantee I can get a, a family visa for my wife and kids. Um, so it used to be that would be pretty simple to get a dependent visa on the visa I would be on when I was teaching in the seminary, but um, it's possible. It's just not as clear-cut as it used to be. Everything's kind of jumbled up right now in just for foreigners in Thailand. So before we make a big move back, kind of want to have some more secured plans because it'd be, be kind of a big hassle to get there and have to come back, uh, you know, a month or two later. So that's, that's the tentative plan. You could pray for favor. Um, we do have a visa processing company that our seminary works with in Thailand that helps us through this. So we're not, have, we're not mavericks. We're not having to just figure this out on our own. We're kind of deferring to the Thai, this, um, Thai office, and then they help us. They're kind of the mediators between us and the government officials. So they do a really good job, but that's kind of where we're at. Um, in the meantime, I have classes with Indian and Burmese and Filipino and Thai pastors. Um, Sometimes I'm up late, 3 a.m., different times on calls with them. I uh, had a class with probably about 20 Indian students just, that just ended, and that went really well. Um, I have some translation projects some, of some resources I develop that are, we're working on translating into Burmese and Chin and Thai. And so uh, hopefully one of those, possibly, um, will be finished by the end of the year and maybe two more launched this summer. So um, those are just things that, various things we have going on. 
Um, uh, Christy's doing really well. Uh, and our boys are, uh, they'll be 12 in September. And um, it's just really amazing to see the heart that God has given them. Um, many times uh, they're drawing or they're writing a story or something, and um, they'll, they'll, it'll include something like wanting to reach the unreached peoples of the world. And they're, it just, it's unsolicited. It's just them demonstrating what's in their heart. And it's really, it's a real special blessing to see God grip their heart at such a young age and um, definitely feel unworthy to have such um, such godly, tender children. Um, it's, it's quite a blessing. So uh, next time maybe I come, when I'm not teaching, um, they'll, they'll come with me. And uh, when I'm not, life isn't so busy when I'm um, just maybe visiting family or something. So maybe later this summer we'll be able to visit as a whole family. So um, uh, as, as we look at this passage today, my, my hope for you is that you would admire the, the application and the implications of the sovereignty of God in your life. Um, I'm, I'm going to, in many, many different ways, point to the, the stability and the security of the sovereignty of God, but not specifically speak to the sovereignty of God in, the, in a um, point-by-point way. I'm, I want to paint a picture for how powerful and how stabilizing and how durable is the sovereignty of God in the life of the believer. Um, so let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right into this. Our God in heaven, you are sovereign. You sit enthroned above the earth, and... All its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, and the nations are like a drop in the bucket. And we look to you as the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Sovereign over all creation and the nations. And Lord, may we look to you and rest in your plan, in your purpose, and in your man. In that man's name we pray. Amen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. So read the opening lines of Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities, which could well describe the 9th century B.C. in Israel. And, indeed, our time in A.D. 2021 as well. If you're looking for uh, a main takeaway for this message, the, the one thing that I'm going to keep emphasizing from a variety of angles is this, that Jesus secures us and sustains us for a great salvation. You are secured and you are sustained by the sovereignty of God for a great salvation. As we look at 1 Kings 19, before we get to 1 Kings 19, just some contextual historical background. Um, Ahab is king over Israel from 874 to 852 B.C., and his reign was the turning point in Israel's history, which is clear from the fact that six chapters at the end of 1 Kings are dedicated to his reign alone. A lot of ink spilled on one figure. And this transitional moment in Israel's history was by far the lowest point in the period of their history since the Judges. One writer says this, 
quote, it looked like the Antichrist had arrived ahead of time. But if your main concerns in life were for the economy, prosperity, overall social stability, these days weren't so bad. Ahab had reigned for 22 years. No insurrections, no coups, no assassination attempts, overall stability. And then there was his shrewd marriage alliance with the ambitious Phoenician Princess Jezebel, which secured unlimited access and privilege to the world-famous Phoenician seaports and seafaring ships. The people of Israel are actually described as fat and happy. There was no felt need for the old-school God of Israel, the God of their forefathers. This was the age of progress and human flourishing. It says in 1 Kings 16.30, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab's obsession excuse me, with Baal worship serving, worshiping Baal, building an altar and a temple for Baal, building a huge idol of Baal, it angered the Lord more than any other king had. And his marriage to the Baal mistress herself, Jezebel, was a major headlong leap into uninhibited rebellion to God. Moreover, Ahab rebuilt Jericho which is not insignificant trivia. So why is that important? Because, see, this seemingly small detail demonstrates how dark this time was, because after the destruction of Jericho, Joshua had declared a curse upon anyone who had ever built the city again. We see this in Joshua 6.26. The curse had forbidden anyone from rebuilding the city, which Ahab certainly in all of his wealth, with the best historians in the land and the most educated advisors, would have willingly done this without any fear of God at all, to defy God. So it's upon this black backdrop that the story commences. Ahab and Jezebel are the evil antagonists, which then leads us to ask the question, who's the righteous protagonist. Well, enter 1 Kings 17.1. The very next verse, 1 Kings 17.1, abruptly introduces an obscure prophet of whom we've never heard before. His name is Elijah, which means my God is Yahweh. Unlike the scriptural introductions to many other major characters, the details of Elijah's resume pedigree, family of origin, are completely withheld in order to focus on his prophetic message to Ahab. One writer pastorally fleshes out the significance of the suddenness of Elijah's appearing. He says this, For to see him, Elijah, appear so suddenly, it reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on earth. For we may be sure that God, in unexpected places, has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. 
God has always his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Whenever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure that his cause will never fail. So in other words, there is a man in Israel, and his name is El-Yah. My God is Yah. And his message is what marks him. His message is what distinguishes him from the prophets of Baal. And what is the first mention of his message? It's in rebuke to Ahab's covenant breaking. It's a pronouncement of covenant curses from Deuteronomy 11. Elijah shows himself to be a true prophet of God because he even predicts drought based upon God's covenant curses and it comes to pass, verifying that he is a prophet of God. He surges with Yahweh worship. So what's so special about this man? In 1 Kings 17 and 18, he's recorded as a transitional figure in the history of the kings and prophets. And so one reason you know he's a transitional figure is because like Moses, Elijah's ministry is actually marked by signs and wonders. So in redemptive history, when God is shifting the the ground redemptively, historically, typically those shifts are accompanied by miraculous events. Consider Moses' miracles in Exodus, Jesus' miraculous three-year ministry, the apostles' miraculous ministry in establishing the New Testament church in Acts. And in this instance in Israel's history, the prophetic office inaugurated through Elijah, it represents the prophetic word, and the law is like the covenant contract. It's like a contract between God and his people is what the law was like. And the prophets, like Elijah, are like the legal attorneys that apply the law to the context of God's people and make charges and warnings and promises to them in order to turn them back to the covenant. So the law is like the legal contract, and the prophets are like the legal attorneys applying the contract to the people, curses, blessings, promises. And the prophetic office is being launched now through Elijah, and these miraculous records in the life of Elijah on numerous occasions, they entail things like hearing the voice of God directly, miraculous provisions of bread, just like manna in the wilderness, miraculous provisions of meat, just like quail in the wilderness, of miraculous provisions of water, just like the rock that is split open in the wilderness. And then God provides food through a widow, and then to Elijah, and then through Elijah, God provides food for the widow during the famine. And God even uses Elijah to raise the life of the widow's dead son. And after all of this, after, after the famine is ending, three years later, Elijah boldly goes to Ahab, And during this famine, apparently, Jezebel has killed all the prophets of God that she could find, though about a hundred were safely hidden away from her. Jezebel and Ahab are like a crime family. They are the Old Testament foreshadow of the beast and the false prophet. Knowing that his life and his career and his security were in danger, nevertheless, Elijah summons 
Ahab, as they might say in Hebrew, quite the chutzpah. In some ways, he is the most wanted man in Israel. He is a national security threat. He is Ahab's fall guy, his scapegoat, his patsy. The nation hates Elijah's name because the word on the street is that Elijah is the one who brought about the three-year famine. So you can hear Ahab's hatred for Elijah and Elijah's boldness in their interaction in 1 Kings 18:17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bowels. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Then, as the prophets of Baal gather at Mount Carmel, Elijah instructs them in verse 24, And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. This is the Old Testament version of Doc Holliday at the gunfight of O.K. Carmel. The prophets of Baal cry out for hours and hours as Elijah teases and mocks them, derides them. And after most of the day has passed, he takes his turn. He pours 12 jars of water over the altar so that's spilling over into the trenches. He calls upon the Lord to make his name known, and God sends down fire out of heaven and consumes the sacrifice and burns up the water. And the people who saw it fall on their faces and declare that the Lord is God. And Elijah seizes and slaughters all of the prophets of Baal single-handedly. So what happened to Elijah? So after this savage massacre, not an overstatement, he is a force to be reckoned with. He makes David's mighty men look like junior varsity. This guy is the man in Israel. His massive victory didn't turn out the way he had hoped, though. Ahab tells Jezebel, and she is raving mad, and she swears she's going to kill Elijah by the next day. So what does he do? He runs away. Let's look at 1 Kings 19, verse 4. I'm going to just read through the, the four verses uh, through verse 18, and I'll make little comments along the way. Verse 4 of chapter 19. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head bread baked on hot stones of, and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over, it, over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi. You shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mechalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword from Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I shall leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right. So what's so amazing about this account? Is it amazing that this mighty man of God, this prophet of prophets, cowers in fear of Jezebel? That Elijah, see, he runs from Jezebel. It's quite out of character, especially after confronting Ahab to his face after raising a child from the dead, after predicting the famine that comes to pass, after seeing God provide food for him through birds, after calling fire out of heaven, after slaughtering 850 priests of Baal, after praying for rain, and after outrunning Ahab's chariot. So instead of writing him off as a prophet who struggles with manic depressive disorders, which of course, of course could have been possible, but the text gives clues that he was ruled more by his convictions than his chemistry. Something deeper is going on here in Elijah. He is wrestling with God's sovereign purposes. Elijah's noble expectations of turning the nation back to Yahweh apparently did not fit his plan and his timing. After Elijah flees to the wilderness, he comes to rest under a tree. There in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord ministers to him. We know from the rest of the Bible that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Messiah. Isn't it interesting that he didn't just send one of his myriads of other angels to go serve Elijah. Isn't it beautiful that the divine angel of the Lord himself stooped down to serve Elijah by preparing some hot bread and cool water while he slept under the shade of a tree? It's as though this is an analogy or a picture of the angel of the Lord foreshadowing him as a servant to God's people who comes not to be served but to serve and to be the living bread and the water of life under whose tree we rest for salvation. An angel of the Lord, this Christophany, revives Elijah's depleted health with bread, water, 
in the shade of a tree. And Elijah goes to Horeb. So why is that significant? Well, Mount Horeb has another name. The other name for Horeb is Mount Sinai, the place where the covenant was both given and broken in Exodus 32 and 33. And 40 days and 40 nights were the times of Israel's unfaithfulness and the times of Moses' intercession. Moreover, what what other prophet would someday spend 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness? And in showing his glory to Moses, Exodus 33 says, Yahweh passed by Moses, just as he now passes by Elijah, the same exact Hebrew words on the same mountain. Elijah knows he is God's man in God's holy mountain. He has spent 40 days and 40 nights in Sinai, which echoes the ministry of of Moses. Elijah is so passionate for the covenant law of God and Yahweh's honor that he goes back to the most holy place in his mind, the sacred place where Moses saw the glory of Yahweh. Maybe the last place that Jezebel's whoring religion had not defiled. He goes there because his passion for Yahweh worship dominates his soul. He is jealous. He is jealous for Yahweh's name to be honored in Israel. And he is afraid that if Jezebel kills him, the light of Israel will be snuffed out. That's the issue. The Lord asks him why he's there at Sinai. And you can hear his his passion for God's name in verse 10 when he repeats it again also in verse 14. I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm, I only I am left. And they seek my life to take it away. See, it's not that he's so afraid that he's going to die. He's just afraid that he's the only one left with the light of Yahweh worship to pass to others in the land of Israel. From From the start, he is portrayed as the man of God in Israel, the only one who stands for Yahweh, even in the literal face of the most powerful man in the nation. He has one holy passion, and just like the Scottish reformer John Knox would say, give me Scotland or I die, Elijah would essentially say, give me national revival or I die. His motives are righteous. They're good. They're, mobile. They're noble. They're, they're true. They're pleasing to God. Indeed, his self-denying passion to glorify Yahweh through bringing about God-centered revival to Israel is probably more superior than most of our life goals and maybe many missions statements of churches and ministries today. He is very selfless in his vision for his life. Though grateful for the few who turned to Yahweh at Mount Carmel, Elijah is despairing and discouraged that national revival did not break out and that the royal family did not repent. And for such an astonishing miracle like fire coming down from heaven, there was such a minuscule ROI, so small return on investment. Only a few turned to Yahweh. And this is the thrilling climax of his ministry And yet, it's as if God didn't come through on his end of the bargain, as Elijah perceived it. What's the point of trying, God? I just want to die. I'm the only one left. 
I, I just, I can't do this anymore. Instead of rebuking Elijah as some sort of emotional, whiny prophet who just can't get his act together, the Lord, who previously provided food and water for him while he slept, that same merciful Lord now shows Elijah his power in a tornado and in an earthquake and in fire, showing Elijah, hey, I got this. I'm in charge here. But then he speaks to him in a low voice. The Lord gave Elijah instructions to anoint Jehu and Elisha, and then the Lord gives Elijah fresh courage to press on, assuring him that he had 7,000 faithful, unknown people among the remnant who refused to follow the wicked culture. Jesus secures us and sustains us for a great salvation. So now fast forward eight and a half centuries. Eight and a half centuries later, knowing the deepest desire of his servants' hearts. Let's just imagine with me, in heaven, God says to Elijah, Hey, Elijah, I want you to meet someone. Take Moses, go down to that mountain. So Moses and Elijah, two servants, passionate for Yahweh's name, the Old Testament representative mediator and the Old Testament representative prophet, they go down and they wait on a high mountain. And suddenly, in their midst, the angel of the Lord shows up in a man's body with a bearded face of a Jewish rabbi. His glory, they knew as the second person of the Trinity in heaven 30 years earlier, is now revealed in the gritty face of a man. And there, with him, are Peter, James, and John, who have only known the human face of this Jewish rabbi, and now they see the radiance of his divine glory that he had before the foundation of the world, the glory that passed by Moses and the glory that passed by Elijah on Sinai. For the first time, Elijah meets the better prophet who speaks a better word that turns the hearts of his people to Yahweh, who writes the law in their hearts. Elijah's hopes and prayers are finally realized in the face of Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Messiah. He is God's plan A, and always has been and always will be. There is no plan B in God's sovereign plans. See, the Lord knows your, the deepest desire of your heart, the good desires, those dreams that you've always wanted for his glory. There are those who seem to go from victory to victory, never struggling, seemingly, in those areas where you secretly battle and grieve. That family whose children all grew up loving the Lord, marrying wisely, finding secure jobs, and living nearby with beautiful grandchildren. That friend who has so much energy and health, no health problems. That missionary biography that everybody loves to talk about, about how God blesses the life of somebody truly surrendered to his purposes. That minister who's always talking about how well things go. How much, how enjoyable ministry really is. That relative who's always talking about how God has blessed them with so many good things. God is good all the time. Amazing house, amazing car, amazing family. Amazing vacations, amazing marriage, amazing devotions, amazing job, amazing food. But then there's you. And you, you struggle to walk in victory over secret sins, those entertaining addictions. 
You wonder if your kids might ever respect you again. You wish you could have spent your life differently for the Lord. You, you wonder at the sovereignty of God and the purposes of this nation. You, you wish you had parents that loved the Lord. You, you grieve over the decadence of this country when you spent your life in its service. You, you just want to give up when you've spent yourself for the Lord. You've given your all, and there is no tangible return on investment that you can see. Most of your efforts to serve God's people, they've amounted to years of backstabbing slander and suddenly departed church members, just gone without, without mention. You're jealous for the Lord and his glory. But he doesn't seem to come through on his end of the bargain in your life. When Jesus called you to pick up your cross, you had no idea how tedious and how discouraging and inglorious it could be. You would never say this to anyone, but maybe you secretly pray and wish that God would just take you home and free you of this life. Paul knew this. In Romans 8, 22, Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And if that's you, that inner groaning for final deliverance, you're not alone. This is the normal Christian life. Knowing that we would be tempted to give up and give in because of the constant anxiety, pain, and distress in this life, Paul calls Christians to look beyond the pain and hope in the dawning glory of the sovereign grace of God. What what does he mean that this glory is not worth comparing to our suffering? Well, he clarifies in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We do not lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So forward-looking faith is hope. By faith, we look back and trust in the things that Christ has done for us, and then by faith, we look forward to what God has promised and hope in his faithfulness to fulfill those promises based upon his trustworthiness of what he has accomplished and what he has fulfilled and promised in the past. From start to finish, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is a grace race. Jesus secures us and sustains us for a great, glorious salvation. And like Elijah, the reason you do not lose heart is because the sovereign God loves you and wields all his sovereign might for you to save you for himself. You are saved in Christ by the sovereign God, from the sovereign God, for the sovereign God. His enduring love and kingly power to save are the overflows of who he is, And his sovereign saving love is infinite. His sovereign saving love 
is eternal. And his sovereign saving love is immutable. It is immeasurable, it lasts forever, and it will not change. I love this passage, Malachi 3.6. I love this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, therefore, you are not consumed. That's gospel. That's good news. Consider those experiences of devastating darkness, merciless disappointment, nightmarish sadness, unremitting pain. You describe the burden as overwhelming, unbearable. But you know, the Bible it, it indeed validates human suffering, but it describes it as light momentary affliction. How is that possible? Because the glory of the resurrection is not even worth comparing to our sufferings. And it's beyond all comparison to our sufferings. So what does that mean? What is this weight of glory that today Elijah and the great cloud of witnesses who have died in faith now enjoy? What is this weight of glory? Well, 1 Peter 1.4 describes it as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept, guarded, secured in heaven for you. So in heaven, and then in the resurrection, there will never, 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 never be one moment of regret, remorse, discouragement, envy, jealousy, slander, lust, trauma, regret that crushes our souls in this life. None of it. We will not even want to recall any of this life to mind. God says in Isaiah 65:17, I love this. 65:17, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And again in Isaiah 54:4, fear not, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. That's really good news for people who struggle with PTSD, trauma, bad memories, regrets. Forgotten. Any recollection of this life will be like a fading dream. Waking up after a dream, as we go through our day, the dream fades. We have some hint of some part of our dream, but in light of true reality and daily living, any reminiscence of a dream is pretty irrelevant. It's trivial. Because this is reality. That was the dream world. Well, in a similar way, this is the dream world. That's reality. And so the sovereign love of God for us in Christ will swallow up what is momentary and transient in this life. God lovingly, sovereignly leverages all of that he is for our good in the resurrection. And the weight that feels so burdensome and so crushing in our momentary affliction now will be translated into a heavy weight of eternal, immeasurable, unchanging glory. The Hebrew word for glory is literally weight or heavy. And so Paul's translating a common theological idea in Hebrew into Greek, basically saying 
basically saying the heavy pains in this life should point us away from those pains to look forward to the unseen promises of heaven and the weight of glory or the heaviness of glory or literally the weight of weight. He's using superlative language. Much emphasis to emphasize the heaviness of this glory so that when we get to heaven, never will we completely fathom the depths of God's wisdom, his goodness, his holiness, his love, his power, justice, and grace. Every day, every day in glory will get better and better and better and better and better. Never will you arrive at fully comprehending and enjoying God's sovereign love for you. And at the end of every day, we'll say, that was the best day of my life. I can't wait for tomorrow. For the Christian, the best is always yet to come. You see, heaven is the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit's holy, eternal, infinite, immutable love. A land of heavy, glorious love in Christ so that day after day, age after age, you will be weighed down with wave after wave of benevolence, happiness, kindness, and love of the triune God. So much so if, that, if you were to experience today, today and you're not yet resurrected bodies, you would cry with heaving gasps. I can't take it anymore, Lord. Stay your hand. You're beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Majesty enthroned above. That's how the sovereign grace of God works on your behalf. In heaven and the new earth, time will cease to be consequential. It won't matter. Time will not matter. We, will, we all know what this is like. When you're caught up in the moment, in the sublime of something you enjoy, you enjoy quite often, you lose track of time. It's a picture of timelessness in heaven. Think of watching maybe your favorite team win the Super Bowl or the World Series or the year you fell in love, the day you got engaged, your wedding day, your honeymoon, the birth of your first child or grandchild, winning the, or scoring, scoring the winning points in a championship game, performing flawlessly in a senior recital, running across a marathon finish line, enjoying Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with all your family and grandkids under your roof. In those blissful moments, time ceases to exist for you. You take your watch off. Nobody cares what happened yesterday. Nobody cares what's going to happen tomorrow. You're caught up in the moment. Nobody's bored. No one checks their watch. They swallow us up and remind us that we were made for something and someone otherworldly, pure and perfect, holy, joyful, unchanging and transcendent. In heaven, nobody's going to say to C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien, you had a better imagination than God does. Never will you be tired or bored or in pain or discouraged or hungry or irritated or sad. Heaven and earth will be a land of laughter and singing, energy and discovery, joy and peace. On the new earth, 
You'll have a reputation and you'll have a job that you love. We were made to work. But, but isn't it interesting how many vocations, how many jobs related to the curse we're not going to need? Doctors, lawyers, insurance agents, military, diplomats, FBI, pastors, missionaries, counselors, pharmacists, mechanics, policemen, firemen. No, no need. The arts and the sciences, the humanities, engineering, space exploration, and the like will abound and resound to the glory of Christ. You will love what you do to the glory of God. And like Elijah, how can we get up in the morning and endure another day, a thankless, heavy, mundane, discouraging world in which we're merely exiles and sojourners? How do we keep going when our prayers and God's promises don't seem to connect? Well, the Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 15:58. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, it's not what you do. It's who you know and who you trust that matters. And how do we know God's promises will come to pass? His purposes for us will be fulfilled and And how do we know that he will not let us go and bring us home safely to glory? Well, here's a passage from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, that has really helped me over the last number of years. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Notice all the superlative language here, all the heavy emphasis on God's sovereign purposes in securing you. Sanctify you completely, God Himself. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept, guarded, secured as blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just in case you're doubting, it says, verse 24 He who calls you, He's faithful. He will surely do it. He's he's not going to present you before Christ as mostly holy or good enough. You will be blameless and you'll have nothing to regret. You're justified. You You are secured with sovereign love. And when you stand before God on that day, he is happy in you. You have nothing to regret. Gone. Forgotten. I love these closing lines of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. It says, regarding Aslan, And Aslan spoke, and he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for securing us 
and sustaining us by your sovereign power for a great salvation. We look to you and trust in you and thank you for loving us in Christ immutably, eternally, and infinitely. And it's in Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.